listening to First Church Charlotte. have a one thing I want to share with you and then we will continue in the word of the Lord. I love all the smiling and giggling and cutting up I hear. Uh, we're a friendly church. We err on the side of being over friendly. Uh, mostly it's okay. Occasionally it gets weird but <laughs> Mostly it's okay. We love you all. We're so glad to see you on Wednesday night. I know many of you, um, your work schedule, you have to really make an effort uh, to be here. And I want you to know it just fills me with happiness and joy to see you and to know that you are hungering for the word of the Lord. Wednesday night is my favorite service. That's my true confession. It's my favorite service because I get to simply be a Bible student and then talk about it. Uh, That's different than a, in other words, I don't really have much performance pressure on Wednesday night. I don't worry that much if I did a great job. Sunday, I worry. And if I didn't, my wife is there to tell me about it. Ah, That was funny. She doesn't. She's my number one. Well, my number one fan. I don't know if fan's the right word. We've been married 25 years. After 25 years, it's like you're number one something, but you're not sure it's a fan. (laughs) No, I'm blessed in my wife. Uh, She makes... Uh, me able to do all this. I could not do this without her. She keeps me sane. So um, let's read this one verse of scripture here at the beginning of chapter number 13, continuing, continuing in the book of Mark. Then as he, Jesus, went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. I'm going to talk for a little while tonight on uh, the idea of revelation. And we are going to see if the scripture can't speak to us. Before you're seated, smile one more time at your neighbor and say, I best not see you falling asleep. (laughs) Stay up for a minute more. I'll nod at you. All right, you may be seated. Real quick, I want to review uh, what's been happening across the parking lot in Prosper University, our mentoring ministry that is offered uh, like so much bread on the water to our community and to our neighborhood. Every Wednesday night we have, uh, they sing and worship a little bit, they split up in small groups, they talk, they have many of you are involved in it at some level. Um, The why is this, I I always want to remind you of the why. Uh, without a why, the how makes sense. And you'll always be tempted to quit because it doesn't make sense. The why is this. 85% of people who are Christians had a positive introduction to faith and church and the body of Christ as a child. 85%. Only 15% come to church as an adult only 15%. These are not just apostolic numbers. These are not just first church numbers. Uh, These are broad uh, numbers in the study of uh, church growth and the sociological studies of religion. 85%. Now, a lot of people say those kids turn into teenagers and they, they quit coming and we lose them. That's why we quit doing children's ministries. I've heard that a lot. But those, a lot of those same kids who quit in their teens come back in their 20s or come back in their 30s. Some of you did that. You have lived that life. And we have, we have kids over there that were the driving force in them coming. And their parents bring them and they tell us, I try to work the door if I can They'll tell me, oh, my, 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 my son or my daughter was just getting on me because I haven't been bringing them to prosper you. I thank God for that. I thank God for that. That can happen even now. In fact, uh, forgive me, um, Esther, if you'll allow me to use your testimony. Uh, where are you at? Esther? Okay, Esther and, and her son, Shay. She told me, they're, they're, they're right over here. I've introduced them before. Um, she gave me the testimony recently that her son's passion for God was what really motivated her to get back involved in a church and get back. You see what I'm saying? And, and 
And not only that, if it wasn't for Dewan, Sister Purple would be in some club here tonight. But his... Her son has kept her. And the final example is me and my mother. I mean, if it wasn't for me, where would she be? Just having fun. So the point is this, is if we have these kids get a positive introduction to faith, it won't matter whether or not they act crazy like you did in their teenage years. They had a positive introduction. And once they start getting their life organized, and once they start growing up a little bit, they'll think, man, I need to get back involved in church. That's the story of so many here. That's why it's bread on the water. We pour into those kids. Some of them may make it through their teens in the church, but they're going to come back to faith. And so I want to give another one final example. Um, uh, Tonight, we had a lady, I met her tonight for the first time, uh, a lovely lady. Uh, She actually heard about what we were doing. I think she heard through uh, Tiffany or some of her other friends. And she loved the idea and actually wanted to, never been to our church, wanted to to be a part of that. So she volunteered and tonight she cooked all of the food for all of those kids. She's never been to our church. She's just saying, that's the kind of thing I want to be involved in. You see, that's a good thing. And so, and so it is bread on the water, but I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I had lunch recently with one of the large, large givers in our church. And I told them, I want to say thank you to you because you make all that kind of stuff possible. So all of you who support First Church with your time, with your talents, with your volunteering, also with your finances and your giving, I want to say thank you because it makes everything else possible. So enough of that. Let's give all our volunteers a hand clap here before we go on. All right, so we are in the Gospel of Mark, and let me remind you that we are in the last week of the Lord's uh, ministry. He is going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to rise again on Sunday. But at this moment, Mark chapter number 13, it is late in the day on Tuesday. So the hour of his betrayal is quickly approaching. The hour of the soldiers coming to take him from that garden of his own sacrificial prayer where he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood in spiritual intercession in that place where he said, not my will, but thy will be done. All of that is bearing down quickly upon him. It is late Tuesday. He's going to be betrayed on Thursday. And so, as you know, we spent the last few weeks talking about it. Jesus has been in the temple, and there he has been speaking with the people. He has been speaking with the religious leaders, speaking with scholars of uh, Jewish law, speaking to leaders of the Sanhedrin Council, and he has, as it were, placed himself at their disposal. They use some of the time to try to trick him, but not all of them are there to trick him. Uh, Some of them are there to observe and and to see. Uh, He He answers their questions and he silences their criticisms and he leaves them speechless in their own uh, rhetorical traps whereby they have tried to ensnare him. And eventually they have nothing to say and then he begins to speak to them. That's what we've been covering in the week's up till now. After this time is done, and he is now uh, finished with the crowds, maybe uh, dinner time has approached, and uh, he is watching as people disperse, and they go to celebrate various uh, parts of this week of, of celebration. It is now that he, having finished with all this teaching, probably as the sun is is setting, um, he is going out of the temple, and one of his disciples says, look at this magnificent temple. This is the temple that Herod built. It was the greatly expanded temple that had been rebuilt by uh, Nehemiah, coming back to the the Holy Land. That was the beginning of this, the laying of the foundation, the rebuilding of the walls, and then 
some time passed and then they erected the walls of the, the second temple and eventually this, this temple would become a grand and incredible construction. Uh, Herod would pour the riches of the Jewish, Jewish nation into this temple. It became the center of Jewish life and it was magnificent. It was beautiful. Not perhaps as great as was the original temple of Solomon, but as a complex of buildings, much, much larger. At least that is my my understanding. And so there is some pride involved, as you would expect, of the accomplishment of the people, even if it had been uh, orchestrated and and administrated by Herod, uh, who was a king with you know mixed opinions uh, from the people anyway. Uh, they, they were proud of it, and so walking out of this temple, one of the disciples says, "Man, what an awesome complex they have here! What an amazing set of buildings! What what amazing construction is this?" And this is when Jesus reminds them that destruction is coming in a day of divine judgment will come upon them. And in that day, these great buildings will be torn down and it'll be so bad that not one stone will be left upon another utter intentional destruction. Now this is uh, happening, this is happening uh, probably around AD uh, 22, 23, right in that range, somewhere early 20s, and uh, the destruction of the temple is going to happen uh, almost 50 years later in 70 AD, and it is going to be, excuse me, I said early 20s, probably the late 20s, right around AD 30, so approximately 40 years later, there is going to be this, this, this destruction of the temple, which is the fulfillment of this scripture. Uh, As they leave the temple, there is, uh, there's this moment of spiritual impartation and revelation. It's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's because after they leave the temple, they don't have the crowds around them anymore. There's no lawyers Jewish lawyers, experts on Mosaic tradition. None of those people are there criticizing. And Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives that is opposite the temple uh, in the way of the land, how the land lays opposite of that, of that temple mount would be the Mount of Olives. And there, as they settle down, uh, for their rest or at least their, their afternoon, uh, preparation for the for the evening shall we say uh, there are four disciples Peter James John and Andrew now there is in the word of the Lord there is this exposure to various groups of discipleship around Jesus Christ it's important for us as Christians to understand this or we will feel like the only level of discipleship that counts is the one we are currently on in the scripture you see seven intentional counts that are symbolic in their meaning and they each of them remember uh, mean something and show something you guys have heard me teach this before. Let me very quickly give it to you because it is so fundamental to my personal uh, review and learning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The first, the first group that is intentionally counted and symbolically represented in the story of the ministry of Jesus Christ is the 5,000. There may have been crowds where there are more than them there, more than 5,000 there, I don't know, but they are not symbolically numbered to show, as it were, a grouping of people around the ministry and the life and the teaching of Jesus. This 5,000 that is typified by the 5,000 who are fed in the wilderness. It is simply a level of interest. These are people who are interested enough in Jesus to leave the cities, to go out three days walk into the wilderness, and to sit with him learning. When the first day passes, they do not leave. They just get hungry. So they're very interested. The first level of Jesus' ministry is to this 
type of a group of people. Jesus doesn't teach a lot in the cities. He goes out into the countryside and the people come to him. If you're not interested, you won't make an effort to come. You will stay at your little hangout in the city. But if you're interested, you will make an effort and you will come. So the first level you see in the ministry of Jesus Christ is the 5,000. They're only interested. It is as though they look at the ministry of Jesus Christ. They don't know if he's the son of God. They don't even think about that. But they're interested in who he is and what he represents. I want all of you to understand that this group of people get almost all of the miracles and they get almost all of the words of Jesus Christ. They do, as far as the recorded words. The longest sermons is Sermon on the Mount. It's the crowd. So Jesus will minister to them. The reason why we don't know the names of people who receive miracles is because they're a part of this crowd. We do know the names of a few inner disciples and closer people, like Lazarus, uh, who receive miracles. But this 5,000 is only interested people. Um, it's easy for us as core believers. The Wednesday night, you guys here on Wednesday night, you are core, you're strong believers. Uh, it's easy for us to see the interested crowd as just kind of an irritant and to think the church has nothing to say to them. And I, I want to remind all of you that the ministry of Jesus Christ begins with the crowd. The next level of discipleship you will see in the scripture, symbolically counted, are those who believe in Jesus Christ, not as a healer, not as a teacher, but as the Son of God. This is the count that Paul does in Corinthians when he talks about those people who saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. What is unique about this? They don't see him as a teacher or a faith healer. He is the son of God. He did what he said he would do. He came out of that grave. They believe in him as the son of God. So the first level is I'm interested. The second level is I believe. There are people that are very much believers, but they are not committed to a specific church. They are not a part of the body of Christ, but they are believers. That is the second level of discipleship you will see in the scripture, the 500. Now, the third level of discipleship is the 120 on the day of Pentecost. So the first level is... I'm interested. The second level is I believe. The third level is the day of Pentecost. I've been changed. Uh, there's 120 there. And you can see this natural falling off, this self-selection happening right before on the day of Pentecost and Terry. Do you see? How do you see a man rise from the dead and then not show up for church? <laughs> it's human nature. They probably they may have showed up the first day, but nothing happened. Oh, this is such an example of pursuing the spiritual in our life. Then the second day, nothing happened. Then the third day, nothing happened. Then the fourth day, nothing happened. And this continues for a while, and the crowd starts thinning out, you see. But when it happens, there's 120 there. So you started with, I'm interested. You went to, I believe. And now you're at the third level of discipleship in the scripture. I've been changed. I was there. I was filled with the spirit. I have been changed. If we're not careful, those of us who are strong believers, we can think this is where the ministry of the church begins. So we can ignore the crowd and we can make enemies of other believers who don't see like we see because the church ends with the, begins with the third level of discipleship. Now, you can do that if you want to, but you can't say you are doing the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's okay for people to just be interested. We're going to love the fire out of them. We're going to testify to them. We're going to believe in them. We're going to speak life to them. And they'll take a step perhaps someday and become a believer. And then we're not going to make an enemy out of them. We're not going to fight them over anything. We're going to be patient with them. We're going to hope that they are changed by a transforming moment of the power of God in their life. Can I have a big Amen. That's the third level of discipleship. I've been changed. The fourth level of discipleship is the 70 inner close 
people that are associated with Jesus. We actually uh, have uh, their na- uh, not not an exact biblical list of their names, but scholars have put together who they probably were from uh, the all the mentions of various writings. And I actually have that. It's too long, of course, to read uh, here. But it includes people like the women who saw him uh, after his resurrection. It includes disciples on the road uh, to uh, to Emmaus and, and all of this kind of a thing. And these are people uh, that are much closer. But the 70 is significant in the ministry of Jesus because when Jesus knew time was short, he selected 70 people and said, go ahead of me to the villages and tell them I'm coming through so that when I come to town, we won't have to deal with political unrest. unrest. We won't have to have riots. I simply can connect with them exactly. And so in uh, you read about this in the Gospel of Luke. The 70 are those who go to lead others. They become leaders ordained by God, directed by God, and empowered by God. This is the 70. Now in a church, this is your leadership, your core people inside a church where the church could not exist without them. This is the, this, this is the church needs the 70, okay? But if we get into the habit of thinking that the only real church is the 70, then we will be a collection without a ministry. We'll be a collection of strong believers, but there'll be no reason for us together. We will have turned a rescue mission into a yachting club. The crowd is the is, is is what we are going to introduce Jesus to. Do you see? So so this fourth level is the level of leadership, core involvement. Someone depends on you. This seventy, I need you to do something for me. Go tell them I'm coming to town. And you say, I'm going to go. Now, Jesus says you're going to face persecution. Your people are not going to receive you. Don't worry about it. Just keep on the mission. So let me say to all the 70 here tonight, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be setback. Not everyone's going to receive it. Don't overthink it. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Don't overthink it. Just stay on task. And keep your eye on the mission. You need to meet Jesus. He is coming and he can change everything that's going on. This level of leadership. So we started with I'm interested. We went to uh, I believe. Then we went to I've been changed. And now we're at I will go. I'll go. Tell me what to do. I'll do anything. Plants need watering. I'll water plants. Somebody needs greeting up front. I will greet. I will do anything. Send me. I will go. Now, if you uh, were formed spiritually in a church that did not acknowledge the first two levels of ministry, um, it is sometimes difficult for you to change gears and realize that the reason for the 70 is to be sent to the 5,000 and introduce Jesus. The 5,000 is not our enemy. They're our mission. And so uh, you see a basic core level for all of us. But when you get to the disciples, you see another level of commitment. After the 70 who are sent, you have the 12 inner disciples. What's unique about them? Well, first of all, they're not simply going to go. They're not simply going to give. They're going to give all. Every one of these men, save for John, is going to die a violent death of persecution where they are being asked not to preach Jesus and they're going to choose death over silence. This is not people who will simply go. This is people who will give all. We're on a little bit of, if you'll allow me to say this, we're on a little bit of holy ground now. These 12 are intentionally chosen by Jesus. We are invited to make of ourselves disciples, but these 12 were chosen. In fact, the foundations of heaven have the names of these 12 men upon them. This is holy ground. This is those who will give all. This is not just leadership. This is sacrifice. Church need churches need people who are at this level. They it's it's all the Lord's. Whatever He needs, I will reorganize my life. I will give all. I'm thankful we have people like that in this church. Amen. So, but inside the twelve people who will give who who give all. That's the 12. There's another level of discipleship, and that's the inner disciples. 
And we normally think of them as the three, but there is a very strong reason to believe that Andrew was also a part of that. And so it was either three or four, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Inner disciples, this is a circle of revelation. These individuals see things that other disciples do not see, that other leaders do not see. They are there when there is a shining that comes over Jesus Christ. And as he is transformed on the mountain and there appear that symbolic sign of the law and the prophets Moses and Elijah and they commune with him and Peter, James, and John stand there in astonishment. They see what others do not see. Another thing unique into this inner circle of revelation is the Olivet Discourse. The lecture, to put it in modern words, that Jesus makes on Mount Olives, of Mount of Olives, after he has talked in the temple on the Tuesday before his death. This is a moment of revelation. Now, if you read chapter number 13, you will read in its entirety, the uh, Olivet Discourse, or this prophetic gift that is imparted to these inner disciples. And you will read great mysteries. And I will, I will, rather than trying to break it down line by line, I want to remind you, first of all, that there is always mystery in Revelation. I want you to understand that. There's always mystery in Revelation. Um, There is a tendency for us to always read scriptures and interpret them according to where we are in time. Uh, So there's three ways for us to interpret this 13th chapter of the book of Mark. Uh, I want to give them to you very quickly. Uh, because I want you to understand them. I have spent a lot of time studying uh, these, and I, in prayer today, realize that if I get too deep into any one of these scriptures, um, this Wednesday night service, where I take approximately 40 minutes and I teach, is not the right venue to try to go line by line through the 13th chapter of the book of Mark, because about four of you will be with me the whole way, and then uh, four of you will just go straight to sleep. Praise the Lord. And uh, the rest of you will be somewhere between those two. Because it is highly, highly technical and is multivariate. Oh, there's many possible uh, interpretations of that. So I'm going to give you the safest way to interpret this. And that is to see it as a word given to the church for the coming destruction of Israel. Now that is very easy to do. And most scholars translate it that way. However, there is a another way to translate it where it hasn't all been fulfilled. And that is to think that uh, up till verse number 34 um there is there is uh, it is about uh, a certain time uh but after that it's about another time that's a second way most common second most common way to uh, interpret it which is up until about verse 32 34 it refers to the temple after that it refers to the second coming of the lord which we know and we believe is going to happen uh the less, the most, the riskiest, but the most tempting way to translate it is to read through it and say, this scripture is for the temple, and this scripture is for the second coming, and this scripture is for the temple, and this scripture is for the second coming. Why is that the most dangerous? Because generally, we set ourselves up for complication when we read through the text and we start saying, this goes to this time, but this verse right beside it goes to this time. Most most students of the Bible will not will 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 shy away from that because it is so presumptuous and there is risk there however i want to make a confession as a modern believer who believes strongly that a day will come when christ will gather his people home i want you to know that is the most natural way to read it as a modern believer that is uh it feels right 
Now, what do we do when there's something that we think we are interpreting it right, but and we want to get it right because none of us are qualified to be our own judges? Can I have an amen? And there's no other safe place than the Word of God. Can I have another amen? What do we do? Well, we translate it and we interpret it with great respect and great caution. And we never, if you don't hear anything else I say in my ministry, you need to get this. Never raise your interpretation to the level of scripture. There's the scripture. It's settled in heaven, full stop, period. And this is what I believe it is saying to me. But my opinion is not on the level of the scripture. I can be wrong, but honey, the scripture can't be wrong. I can be confused, but the scripture is not confused. My learning may change with study and understanding, but the scripture does not change. It is forever settled in heaven. Some of the biggest mistakes that good, sincere people have made in all religions is when they make the mistake of the Pharisees and they adopt a dual Torah system. The dual Torah is the mistake of the Pharisees, and it goes like this. There's Moses' words, but then there's our words, and our words are just as important as Moses' words. You can Google, uh, if you want to do some study of this on your own, Google the, dual, the Pharisee, Pharisee dual Torah, and there's a ton of, ton of things out there. That's the error. When we say our interpretation is just as right as the Word of God, honey, your interpretation uh, might be right. It might not be right, but the word of God is forever settled in heaven. So there's a lot to be said for us to humble ourselves and to go to the scripture. So when I read through this Olivet Discourse, I read things such, such, as, such as this. There's the parable of the fig tree. Well, let me back back up to the beginning. There's the signs of the times and the end of the age. Uh, most scholars believe that is primarily about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There is the great tribulation. Uh, most scholars believe that is referring to... Uh, in the rhetoric, the speech and style of the time to the coming of the of the the destruction of the temple of verse 24 uh, it starts diverging I think I said 32 earlier but anyway you get the idea where we start seeing this differently we're seeing the coming of the son of man in clouds of glory and so we say now that sounds like the rapture to me doesn't that sound like the rapture to you uh, and we we want to shift gears and um, you know uh, we have to we have to say okay we're going to do that uh, um, but um, uh, we understand there is uh, difficulty in knowing exactly. Uh, some Jewish scholars interpret this uh, even even differently than do we, uh, even though they would not accept it as holy scripture like we do. Uh, there's the parable of the fig tree, and there's finally the warning, no man knows the day or the hour, so you need to be ready. You need to watch. Now, uh, if this passage was primarily directed as a warning to the believers, I want you to know it worked. How do we know that? Well, we know from the early church writing of early church fathers, such as Eusebius, who uh, lived uh, just uh, like uh, a little over 150 years after the destruction of the temple. Uh, in his writings, he tells in his book entitled Ecclesiastical History, he wrote that early church Christians in Jerusalem had the gospel of Matthew. Matthew was written to Jews, and it is the most read among the Jews of the time. Eusebius, this isn't a modern scholar, this is from uh, 300 AD, wrote that because of the uh, warnings in the Olivet Discourse, the church in Jerusalem left, many of them left the city when Rome came down upon it to, to destroy it. Again, this is a historian from 300 AD. And because of the warning of the Olivet Discourse, the church in Jerusalem fled as it was being surrounded by the Roman uh, army. What's amazing about that is if it was primarily 
for that purpose, I want you to know God did a great job and the church heeded that warning and left the destruction. And perhaps that is one of the reasons why the destruction of the temple is not mentioned in the, in the New Testament church writings. It could have been a huge political issue. It could have been a huge issue of social tension between Jew and Gentile, Roman Christians against Jerusalem Christians. But it's not. It's never mentioned. It might have been the case uh, that, that this warning of the Olivet Discourse served that purpose and the church was warned and many of them were able to avoid this destruction whereby so many, so many Jews were killed by this. Now this was a massive destruction. All of the harsh language that is very Old Testament in its phrasing of what is going to happen when this temple is destroyed, it is all fulfilled. Let me very quickly uh, give you some history. This is a writing from Flavius Josephus who quoted Quoted a, a Jewish general uh, who was taken captive by the Romans just prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, this, again, this isn't modern scholarship. This is from the time, this is contemporaries to the destruction. Uh, Josephus gives us uh, this, this information. Uh, he says, this Jewish general, all the calamities which had befallen any nation from the beginning of the world were but small in comparison with what the Jews went through uh, at this moment. In the siege of Jerusalem, no fewer than 1.1 million Jews uh, perished. What had happened, it was during the time of the Passover. Jews came from all the region. There were up to 3 million Jews assembled there for the Passover, and the Roman army uh, would not allow, well, held them there, and uh, the siege began. 1.1 million were killed inside the city. Uh, in the surrounding provinces, another quarter of a million approximately were killed. Uh, 97,000, these aren't modern numbers. Remember, this is Josephus writing as a Roman historian at the time. Uh, 97,000 thereabouts was taken captive. Uh, many of them were carried um, back to various uh, Roman cities where they were used in uh, Roman theaters as entertainment, fed to beasts, forced to fight amongst themselves and against gladiators. Some of them were sent en masse to Egypt to work uh, the fields, the, the Roman-controlled grain fields in Egypt and the like. Uh, others were sold as slaves in smaller groups to raise funds. All of those are told by Josephus, the, the Jewish man who worked as a Roman historian uh, in this time and was there for this destruction of the temple. It was a tragic, tragic moment that the children of Israel would almost, in many ways, never recover from uh, until they were brought back by the miraculous hand of God back to Jerusalem in the forming of Israel as a nation. So I want you to see what this, this, this discourse on Mount Olives is. This is a moment of divine impartation. It is revelation. Uh, it is my experience that revelation is not given to everyone. A revelation is oftentimes only given to a few who have a heart and a ministry and a talent and a sensitivity that matches the needs of God in that time, place, and generation. Uh, they work in their time with a prophetic ability. They have insight and revelation that perhaps many of us would not have. It does not necessarily make them better than anyone else. It simply makes them different. The hand does not get to say to the arm, I have no need to you. The eye is much more sensitive than the arm, but it has a different function. And prophets and the like in a church can function with that sensitivity, almost like the eye. It often causes them great suffering in their personal life to be people of revelation. I don't want you to rush past that. Uh, they're often spiritually vulnerable in a way that other people are not. And they often have lived through trials and pains that other people have not lived through. So although they have an ability, these highly, highly sensitive people who are given revelation, uh, although they have an ability 
to be a great blessing to the church. If you think of it in terms of status and you want it because you want to be the most spiritual person, you have not, you, you're, you're, you, 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 there's almost no way you're going to get there like that because it is usually the result of having uh, unique talents set in a unique moment and oftentimes uh, topped with unique pain. And uh, some of the things that I have seen in my years of ministry, people with unique abilities and talents, they weren't free. They, they oftentimes paid a price. There was a brokenness in them. And so uh, if, you, if you have prayed that you desire to, to be used of God and then you get bitter when trouble comes into your life, is that fair? I don't want to be ugly. I love all you guys. Y'all are awesome. But I want you to hear me. Um, don't don't talk about oh God use me and then when trouble comes into your life say oh man I don't know what God's thinking I'm doing no no I, I've never seen I've never seen people who were made highly sensitive by God and ushered into a place of revelation who did not have in their life a great breaking and a great pain um, yes. Paul may have been caught up into the third heaven, but Paul also carried a great wound in his spirit. And he prayed three times, God set me free from this, and God finally told him to shut up. You see, Paul, you don't get a certain sensitivity uh, with a hardness of heart. Um, And so, uh, I would say this first of all, I, I don't, I would not encourage anyone to, to, you know, go around looking for suffering so they can be spiritual. That is just as silly as anything else and probably says more about the state of your general intelligence than your general. Myself kind of feeling sorry for myself for a little bit, a little bit and talking to someone and, 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 you know, saying all the same little things about, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish this was over. I hate being misunderstood. I hate this. I dislike this. And, 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 and I felt a quickening in my spirit. And I said, but you know, what? may be the will of God. This all may be the will of God. And if so, I want to carry it with grace and I want to carry it with faith. And so I don't know why suffering comes into our life. I know it is a, it is a challenge for us to stand up in faith and say, I trust God. I trust God. That's the first challenge. And that's about your salvation. Because if you won't trust God in pain, you are not going to make it, honey. You are not. There's too much pain. So the first response to suffering in your life, and, and I'll be honest with you, I've known some people that I, I, I don't even know why they've received the suffering they have. But the first test is, can I believe? And I'm glad most of you here have chosen again and again to believe. Can I have an amen? You've chosen to believe. You've chosen to trust. You're still here. There's people who chose not to believe. They're not here. Okay? That's the first test. The second test of suffering in our lives is not can we make it through, not can we keep our faith. The second test is, God, is there any way these tears will ever be useful to you? Now you start having an opportunity to start getting closer to God in your life. Because it's not just about me, am I going to make it? It's about, Lord, is there anything useful that can come out of this? And if so, I want you to know I'm volunteering. If it's a testimony, I'm honored to be a testimony. If it's a ministry, most ministry comes out of some form of pain. I didn't say titles. Titles, you can give them out, dime a dozen. I hereby declare you chief whatever. Just you pick it. It's not a title. It's a ministry. And um, out of that, that ministry, it, it comes this preparatory phase. And you know what preparatory phases look like in the scripture? Oh, deserts and wildernesses and hiding in caves and running for your life. You get the general idea. Locked up in prison. Okay, so the second phase of pain in our life is not can we make it. I pray you guys here, you've you, you, you got to make it. Okay, so the second phase is can you use it? Okay, the only way God can use it is if you keep a beautiful spirit. It's the only way God can use your pain. If you let your spirit get ugly, if you let your spirit get self-focused and self-centered, if you let that happen, it won't be useful to anybody. Why? It's ugly and people will turn away from it. That is why 
that is why our, uh, the spirit of which we lead is one of the most important things because we don't reproduce after our knowledge. We reproduce after our spirit. If you're a highly critical person, your kids are going to be highly critical. Now, you can quote scripture all day long, but honey, they were there and they saw you. I don't want to, I, I don't, I, you understand what I'm saying? Like begets like. It's a spiritual truth. So if you want your suffering to be more than just, oh, I made it. If you want it to be somehow useful to God, you have to keep a beautiful spirit. And you have to let your spirit be part of the testimony. Because you didn't just make it. You made it in all joy. And you made it saying, I'm weeping right now, but the morning is coming and God's going to comfort me and God's going to bring me to fruition. Now, if you can do all, if you can do that, I believe, and this is, this is my personal experience of observing uh, the pursuit of God and many, many people, many of them my elders, many of them uh, people I was pastoring. Uh, uh, if you can, first of all, make it through your suffering, number one, if you can be willing to offer that suffering unto the Lord for his purpose, if you can keep a sweet beautiful spirit that when people see the pain they won't look away because you've made it beautiful with your spirit if it's just misery people will look away but if you've made it beautiful with your sweet spirit people won't look away now it becomes testimony it becomes the glory of God you see if you can do that I believe by maintaining that kind of of a heart and that kind of an attitude, I believe you have set yourself in a place of spiritual trust where God will begin to open his spirit to you in a way you never would have perceived if you had just made it, number one, or if you had just volunteered but got bitter a year later. But if you did, if you made it, if you offered it to the Lord in sincerity, if you maintained a beautiful spirit of humility and spiritual vulnerability through it all. I believe you are now stepping into a role where God can begin to speak you to you in ways you never imagined when you were just a believer, when you were just going to church, because you are now somebody who is not just, you know, the it's not your first rodeo, shall we say, and you have shown how you handle not just spiritual things, but how you handle pain. And so, when we see Jesus at Gethsemane, and he is dying out to his flesh. Remember, Gethsemane is not about overcoming the enemy. That was what the wilderness was for. Gethsemane is about overcoming the self. And the self is a much harder thing for us to overcome than the enemy. You get to rebuke the devil in Jesus' name and he'll flee. Try rebuking your bad attitude. It'll be right there five minutes later. Well, I said... I'll tell you something else. No, no, you have to crucify that bad attitude at an altar on your knees. You have to choose that. And when you choose it, the preacher isn't there encouraging you. Hopefully you have a spiritual spouse who's kind of sending you in the right direction. Now, now really, now really, that's not really. Hopefully you have that, but if you don't, you have to choose it and say, no. This tongue I have will kill. It will divide. It will destroy. This arrogance that I hide inside will create an ugly, bitter spirit. And it will flow out of me and everything I touch. Or I can go to an altar and I can choose to be sweet in my pain. And I, ch- I can choose to be humble in my suffering. And I can choose to say, I'll rebuke the devil. But this carnal flesh is going to stay right here at this altar until I have a breakthrough. I think somewhere in a mysterious spiritual manner that I only see like through a glass darkly, um, I think I think there is there is something there that the person who is useful to the Lord, talented, committed, they're a leader, they are strong, and all of these things come and they they give themselves an opportunity for a greater greater revelation. God chooses people to enter in to the sacred places. Not everybody hears the Olivet Discourse. It's a handful drawn in. And 
they become bearers of precious word. And because they share it, given to them, and they share it, it can save a church 40 years later that's on the verge of being destroyed. And somebody says, remember the 24th chapter. They didn't have chapter and verse like we do back then, but let's just say, remember the Olivet Discourse where Jesus warned of such a time as this. Honey, it's time to pack up. We're leaving. And they were saved from the destruction of the, of the city. So Revelation if we have opportunity and we have the right heart and we pursue zealously and sincerely the Lord may show us and if that happens it's a high high honor and through that sharing is a great great blessing to the whole house of God to the people of God because you have become spiritually the eyes of the body of Christ able to see what God is doing and able to throw yourself into the work with anointing and purpose let's all stand turn around find somebody take their hand put a hand on their shoulder whatever's appropriate Uh, let's just kind of form some little prayer groups here for a moment before we're dismissed I I feel an urgency so to speak in some of your hearts where you I've touched on some of the hunger that's in some of you guys to make sense out of some of the pain in your life I, 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 I'd like you to pray right now. You've heard me talk. I want you to talk now. I want you to talk to the Lord all across this house. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture, and we need you in our life and in our spirit. We need you to give us strength when life doesn't make sense, and pain is pretty much overwhelming uh, everything else in our life, Lord, and we're tempted by the flesh, and we're tempted to the ways of the flesh. Lord, we, we, need to, we need to find within our heart a willingness to accept your way and a willingness to present ourselves to your hand. Lord, I pray that you would help me when there's disappointment. I, I pray you would help me to see beyond the disappointment. Lord, I pray, I pray for your wisdom and that when there's confusion, that you would, you would help me to see beyond the confusion. Help me to trust you in the middle of, of criticism and negativity. Help me to see beyond that. Help me to help me to love the person. Help me to be patient with the person, oh God. Help me to see beyond that and see purpose beyond it. See the potential for great, great spiritual vision and unveiling and revelation. Lord Jesus, we need you. We want to be your people. We know that you have chosen us and we know that you have imparted to us of your great truth and your powerful word. But Lord, we we want to take up our cross and follow you. We don't want to simply be believers without a cross. We want to take up that cross, deny ourselves, and follow you in our lives, Lord Jesus. As a church, we want to be missional. We want to be intentional. We want to find what can make a difference and throw ourselves into it, Lord. We want to see the need and create the structure that can meet that need. Help us, oh God. Lead us. Guide us. Bless your people, I pray, Lord. Bless the leaders in our church who are so willing to work. I thank you for every leader we have, every ministry leader we have, and we're so blessed. I I pray your strength to them. I pray your wisdom to them. I pray your anointing upon them, oh God. I pray for the wonderful members of this church who are passionate about knowing you and serving you, oh God. Help us. Help us to see. Help us to understand. Help us to perceive. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Oh, put your hands together and give a hand clap of praise to the Lord here tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. We love you. Uh, remember this this Friday is that uh, free legal workshop. Most of you have your life mostly organized, but you may have some friends who could use the legal workshop. Let's serve them as a church. We created this to serve our community. Tell them about it. Let's serve them. Uh, and man, we need you to sign up if you're going to the Father's Day shootout or if you're coming to the dinner. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, 
come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., and Bible Study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.